Um, so I'm going to pray, first of all, because uh, um, <clears throat> the Sermon on the Mount goes from chapter 5 in Matthew all the way up to chapter 7. And it is, there is so much. I have just been troubled about how poorly I'm going to cover anything. And so basically I gave up. I'm like, I can't cover all this stuff. Um, and uh, um, uh, yeah, so, uh, but let me pray and the Lord will help us and we'll, uh, we'll get through it. We have I don't think I'm going to take a whole hour, and we've got we've got things like videos. We have an exercise to do. Wow. It's going to be like wow. so fun. I love it. I have a question first. Do you have any and we have questions. Backwards. Dan, you're so silly. This is not the front. Here, why don't you take this one? Thank you. Olivia's not even that big of a deal. Is it okay if I take this one? Yeah. Dan was moving in that's so funny. I, no wonder it looks so funny. <laughs> oh, yeah. Mine's right. Mine's right. Oh, I know thing. why. It's because I, I sorted them face down and then I stapled them. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> maybe maybe all the cool people have their staple on the right side. We're going to pray. Jesus, we pray that you uh, would um, anoint this time and anoint these words of yours and and uh, I pray in particular Lord that you give us each a desire to dig into this so deep that it becomes a life obsession I, I pray that with boldness Lord I ask that you give us such a, a dedication to your words on that on that mountain your words on the plain as Luke records and uh, and it becomes a lifelong obsession where we declare to ourselves and to those around us, I'm, I've made it a life study of understanding what it is that you're presenting uh, on the mountain and what your manifesto for the kingdom is. Lord, help us to understand what that is. In Jesus' name. So, um, uh, we, uh, in East Bay Prayer Furnace, we have three main thrusts. You don't, won't find this written anywhere. It just kind of happens that that's the way our teaching goes. We have three things that we, um, I, don't, I don't need to speak through this, right? Yeah. Well, no, I guess you don't. Except I think Denise is watching online. What's that? Well, I'm not, actually, I'm not doing it that way. I'm just going to record it. She can, she can listen later. Oh. I'm just going to put it on the podcast, so. Yeah. So hopefully, uh, hopefully you all can hear me. Hopefully it's loud enough. And we have three main pillars three things that we are teaching kind of naturally evolves to. We're either talking about um, intimacy with God or our teaching. We oftentimes have been talking for some time about the end times um, and about the Sermon on the Mount. Um, and the Sermon of those three things, the Sermon on the Mount by far uh, is the, fill in the blank, hardest. It is the hardest. It is, it's, it's why we haven't really been focusing on it so much except that it is uh, what we desire to be as a body, what the prayer movement desires to be, what we aspire to be in life. Um, <coughs> it's easy to talk about the end times because that hasn't happened yet, and so we've got certain scriptures and they're controversial about what might happen, but you know it hasn't really happened yet. It's easy to talk about intimacy with the Lord because we love it so much and we feel him here, but the Sermon on the Mount 
forgiving your enemies, blessing those who curse you, walking the extra mile, you know, uh, deciding that if you are poor or even poor in spirit or mourning, you are blessed. Those things, those things are hard. And uh, we're going to talk a, a, a little bit about that. Um, here's the thing. When Jesus was on earth, when he was talking to the Jews and he said the kingdom of, of heaven is at hand, that was a real offer. He was truly offering the kingdom of God to the Jews. And, and when he, what he does is he comes to this uh, mountain and explains what that kingdom is like. But had the Jews at that time said yes, had they, had they said we, uh, we want what you are offering, we accept that kingdom, it would have been a real offer. And the kingdom would have come at that time. They would have, came, Jesus would have been king. And they would have run his kingdom according to these standards, according to what you see in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Um, they rejected the opportunity to follow God's way. They rejected the offer. And so when Matthew, in Matthew 27, um, says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets, he was talking about himself, and, and others who had come up there, and you stone those who, who are sent to you, how often I've longed to gather your children together like a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. Look, now your house is left you desolate. And I tell you, you won't see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Mm-hmm. So he, he was mourning over the fact that he offered the kingdom of God to those Jews and they rejected him. Um, and as always, their rejection doesn't mean that God is thwarted. doesn't mean that God is canceled from being able to do what he wants to do. Uh, only that it's going to happen uh, in some other way. Uh, by the way, that's, that happens in your life, too. When you say no to the Lord, when he's calling you in a particular thing, or he wants you to go in a particular direction, and you say no, uh, maybe, maybe, maybe it's a hard no, and, and he has to find somebody else. Like, like, uh, like uh, uh, Saul with David, where Saul basically disqualified himself uh, from, from leaving the kingdom through his own actions. Maybe something like Jonah, where he says no, and Jonah... Uh, uh, gets his mind changed, uh, but but often when it happens, it happens in, in a little. It takes a little bit longer. In the case of the kingdom being offered, that's definitely the case. It's been two thousand years now. They were waiting for Jesus to bring the kingdom in full. We've got the already and not yet aspect of the kingdom. Uh, and oftentimes, if you say no at first, it comes around again with a whole lot more more pain. And in this case, that's definitely been the case. Uh, but had it been accepted, the, the Sermon on the Mount is the way that Jesus would have governed his kingdom. Um, and he says uh, that there's a way, uh, by the way, there's a way for you to demonstrate how much you love me. Uh, he says this in John. He says, those who love me obey my commands. And so you've got to ask, and, and I've asked, I'm sure you've asked, what are those commands? <laughs> I want to love you. Tell me how, what those commands are. And he would say, first and foremost, I laid them out in the Sermon on the Mount. Those are the things that I'm telling you is the way that you live according to my kingdom. The way that you live according to what I'm commanding you is first and foremost through the, the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said in Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, so go therefore and make disciples of nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. What did Jesus command them? He commanded them the things in the Sermon on the Mount. 
He said, go and teach the, the nations these things that I have laid out in the Sermon on the Mount. It's exactly what we're finding. And that's an important question if love is on the line, if love for Jesus. If we're demonstrating love for Jesus, that Sermon on the Mount is, is, the, way we just, uh, is the way we lay it out. Um, so it's the way that the kingdom is intended to operate, and it's the way the kingdom will operate when Jesus is physically on the throne. Uh, which is really interesting. It means that those things that we put into practice now that look like the Sermon on the Mount, even, either in our own lives or, or organizationally or governmentally or in, in other areas, those things are sustained in Jesus' new kingdom. It, it's the way that his kingdom is going to operate when he's here. Um, but well, like Tim Mackey says, the history of Christianity is the history of evading, of, of basically ignoring the Sermon on the Mount. The history of Christianity is, is, a, is a history of trying to pretend like there is some other way to get to Jesus besides, or some other way to please Jesus besides the Sermon on the Mount. Um, the Sermon on the Mount for us uh, in, in this day and age, 2,000 years later, it is a in your face to the culture. It's a punk rock kind of tattoo on the forehead way of living life in, in Jesus that the world is just not familiar with. Uh, and because it embraces weakness, and it embraces poverty, and it embraces love, you know, and, and love comes, comes on those things. And we just do not like, we in particular in America, do not like weakness. We don't like poverty. We don't like the fact that we have to be second class to, to uh, somebody else, that we have to walk the extra mile, etc. Um, it is, it, it's, it's calling us to be whole-scale, different humans. Um, easy to talk about. It's easy for me to, uh, to talk about. Very hard to do. So, um, those listening to Jesus in that, in that day, and all the way up to, uh, up to our day, um, have this particular reaction. When Jesus goes through chapter 5, chapter 6, and chapter 7, he comes to, uh, he comes to chapter 7, and uh, go ahead and turn in your Bibles. Matthew 7 um, verse 28 anybody want to read that out loud and proud I would love to okay in one second when Jesus had finished saying these things the crowds were amazed at his teaching that mm -hmm. keep going because he taught as one who had authority and not as the teachers of Jesus finished saying these things, they were amazed. That, that, that word means astonished. It means mouth open, jaw drop, wide eyed, like what the heck? That's, that's what amazed means. It, it means that they were, their mind was blown. They have never heard anybody like this. Nobody ever have spo has spoken like this and lived it out. People have spoken superlatives like this, but they don't live it out. Jesus speaks superlatives and he lived it out. Nobody has, has ever since has said anything even similar. Um, and so that's, that's the power of the Sermon on the Mount. It, and, and hopefully you guys have read it. Uh, I'm, I don't have a, a prayer of being able to go through it uh, in any kind of detail, especially with, with the limited time. And I know we, we've been here a while already. What I want to do is show two videos that will take less than 10 minutes total <clears throat> that will give us both a quick overview of the first few chapters of Matthew and a quick overview of the Sermon on the Mount. Um, and then we'll talk about goals and, 
and, uh, and maybe some, uh, some exercises. So I, I don't know if you're able to bring that first one up. Yeah, that one. Yeah, and I hit play, and hopefully it's, and then you got to put the sound on that. The Gospel according to Matthew. It's one of the earliest official accounts about Jesus of Nazareth, his life, his death, and his resurrection. The book itself is anonymous, but the earliest reliable tradition links it to Matthew the tax collector, who was one of the twelve apostles that Jesus appointed, and he actually appears within the book itself. For about 30 to 40 years, the apostles orally taught and passed on their eyewitness account about Jesus, along with his teachings that they had all memorized. And Matthew has then collected and arranged all of these into this amazing tapestry and designed the book to highlight certain themes about Jesus. In this video, we're just going to cover the first half of the book. Specifically, Matthew wants to show how Jesus is the continuation and fulfillment of the whole biblical story about God and Israel. That Jesus is the Messiah from the line of David, that he is a new authoritative teacher like Moses, and not only that, Jesus is God with us, or in Hebrew, Emmanuel. And Matthew's designed this book with an introduction and then a conclusion, and these act like a frame around five clear sections right here in the center, each of which concludes with a long block of Jesus' teaching. Now this design is very intentional and it's amazing. Just watch how this works. Chapters 1 through 3, they set the stage by attaching Jesus' story right onto the storyline of the Old Testament scriptures. So Matthew opens with a genealogy about Jesus, highlights how he is from the messianic line of the son of David, and he's a son of Abraham. That means he's going to bring God's blessing to all of the nations. After that, we get the famous story about Jesus' birth, and how all of the events fulfilled the Old Testament prophetic promises, that the nations would come and honor the Messiah, that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, but even more than that, Jesus' conception by the Holy Spirit, his name Emmanuel, all these work together to show that Jesus is no mere human, he is God with us. God become human. So you can see two of Matthew's key themes right here in the introduction. He's from the line of David. He's Emmanuel. But Matthew also wants to show how Jesus is a new Moses. So like Moses, Jesus came up out of Egypt. He passed through the waters of baptism. And he entered into the wilderness for 40 days. And then Jesus goes up onto a mountain to deliver his new teaching. So through all of this, Matthew is claiming that Jesus is the promised greater than Moses figure who's going to deliver Israel from slavery. He's going to give them new divine teaching. He's going to save them from their sins and bring about a new covenant relationship between God and his people. This Moses and Jesus parallel also explains why Matthew has structured the center of the book the way that he did. These five main parts highlight Jesus as a teacher. And he's created a parallel. Jesus as a teacher parallels the five books of Moses. Jesus is the new authoritative covenant teacher who's going to fulfill the storyline of the Torah. Now in the first section, chapters 4 to 7, Jesus steps onto the scene announcing the arrival of God's kingdom. And this is really key. The kingdom is in essence about God's rescue operation for his whole world. And it's taking place through King Jesus. Jesus has come to confront evil, especially spiritual evil, and his whole legacy of demon oppression and disease and death. 
Jesus has come to restore God's rule and reign over the whole world by creating a new family of people who will follow him, obey his teachings, and live under his rule. So, after Jesus begins healing people and forming a movement, a community, he takes his followers out to a mountain or a hillside, and he delivers his first big block of teaching, traditionally called the Sermon on the Mount. And here Jesus explores what it looks like to follow him and live in God's kingdom. And it's an upside-down kingdom, where there are no privileged members. So the poor, the nobodies, the wealthy, the religious, everybody is invited and is called to turn, to repent, and to follow Jesus and join a family. But Jesus says that he's not here to set aside the commands of the Torah or the Old Testament. Rather, he's here to fulfill all of that through his life, through his teachings. He's here to transform the hearts of his people so that they can truly love God and love their neighbor, including their enemy. After concluding his great teaching on the kingdom, the next section shows Jesus bringing the kingdom into reality in the day-to-day lives of people. So Matthew's arranged here nine stories about Jesus bringing the power of God's kingdom into the lives of hurting, broken people. There are three groups of three stories, and they're all about people who are sick, or have broken bodies, or they're in danger, and Jesus heals or saves them by these acts of grace and power. And then right in between these triads, we find two parallel stories about Jesus' call that people should follow him. Matthew's making a point here. One can only experience the power of Jesus' grace by following him and becoming his disciple. Now, after Matthew has shown the power of the kingdom through Jesus, Jesus then extends his reach by sending out the 12 disciples who are going to go do what he's been doing. And this leads to the second large block of teaching, chapter 10. And here, Jesus teaches his disciples how to announce the kingdom and what to expect once they did. Many among Israel are accepting Jesus and his offer of the kingdom, but Israel's leaders, they aren't. They stand to lose a lot if they repent and become disciples of Jesus. And so Jesus knows they're going to reject him and persecute his followers which is exactly what happens. In the next section, chapters 11 through 13, Matthew has collected a group of stories about how people are responding to Jesus and his message, and it's a mixed bag. So some stories are positive. People love Jesus, and they think he's the Messiah. Others are more neutral, like John the Baptist, or even the members of Jesus' own family, and they make it clear that Jesus is not what they expected. And then you have Israel's leaders. They're entirely negative. You have the Pharisees and the Bible scholars. They all reject Jesus together. They think he's a false teacher. He's leading the people astray. They think he's blasphemous and these exalted claims he's making about himself. But Jesus isn't surprised or thrown by all these diverse responses. In fact, he focuses on it in the third block of teaching, chapter 13. Here Matthew's collected together a bunch of Jesus' parables about the kingdom like about farmers throwing seed on four types of soil, or about a mustard seed, or a pearl, or buried treasure. These parables are like a commentary on the stories that you just read in chapters 11 and 12. Some people are accepting Jesus with enthusiasm. Others are rejecting him. But God's kingdom is of ultimate value, and it will not stop spreading despite all of these obstacles. So that's the first half of the Gospel according to Matthew. Now, here's a few more things to look for as you read through these chapters. Matthew's presenting Jesus, remember, as the continuation and fulfillment of the Old Testament storyline. So, look for how he weaves in quotations from the Old Testament scriptures. And what you'll find is that they're placed at strategic points in the story. 
explaining more about Jesus and his identity. So stop. Take time to go look up these references and read them in their Old Testament context. And most often you'll discover really cool, interesting connections. Lastly, pay attention to the types of people who accept Jesus and follow him. And you'll see that it's most often people who are unimportant, they're nobodies, or they're irreligious. And these are the people who are transformed by their trust or faith in Jesus and follow him. And it's the religious and the prideful who are offended by him. So how is this tension between Jesus and Israel's leaders going to play itself out? That's what the second half of Matthew is all about. Okay, that, that was just the overview. <clears throat> I felt like it was pretty important to get a sense of where Matthew was going with this. Um, and then uh, I want to play this one. This is spoken gospel. We're dead. Matthew's not the only place where the Sermon on the Mount is located. It's also in Luke. Also, pieces of it are in Mark. Um, and Luke uh, calls it the Sermon on the Plain, not that plain, but plain <laughs> area. <laughs> um, so, uh, different emphasis. Uh, and so, the, the likelihood is that Jesus had a standard message he was giving often. And you would expect that with this Sermon on the Mount, that was his constant testimony. He would, he would say it over and over again. This is what I'm bringing. This is what you're signing up for. This is the way the kingdom is going to operate. Um, this is going to be uh, particularly on uh, focused on the Sermon on the Mount. Dedicated to seeing Jesus in all of Scripture. In each episode, we see what's happening in a biblical text and how it sheds light on Jesus and his gospel. There was a like Moses stood on Mount Sinai to give the first law in Exodus, Jesus now stands on a mountain to talk about how he can fulfill the law in Matthew. He begins with a list of blessings to the poor in spirit, the mourning, the persecuted. Jesus is telling the Israelites in exile that though they are impoverished, mournful, and persecuted, they are now blessed because Jesus is there to bring them out of exile and out of the wilderness and into his kingdom. Jesus continues by explaining that citizens of the kingdom live by God's law. And as they do this, others notice and glorify God the way a light shines from a lampstand. This was the point of the original law given to Moses in Exodus, that Israel would be a light to the nations. But many obey the law for their own glory. They pray, fast, and give in order to be seen by people rather than just loving from a sincere heart. Instead of seeking human approval, Jesus encourages his listeners to trust that there is a reward in heaven stored up for them. Jesus shows us through his teaching that God is after our hearts, not just our actions. He says that anger is like murder and that lust is like adultery. Jesus aims at our hearts, which is a place within us that the law by itself could not reach. Nevertheless, these laws are meant to be lived, not just heard. To hear and to do nothing is to build upon sand, but to hear the teacher, to trust and obey, is to find a sure foundation. Jesus said he came to fulfill the law. This is good news because no one had yet taught, understood, or obeyed the law perfectly. 
Jesus didn't just give us right teaching. He lived it out on our behalf. He loved his enemies by dying for them. He prayed, Father, forgive them when he was persecuted on the cross. He turned his cheek when struck by Roman guards. Through Jesus, we are led into a new kingdom life. Jesus points out two paths. There's the broad way and the narrow way. There are many ways to destroy our lives, but only one way to restore them. And the good news is that through Jesus, we can now be saved. Jesus is our narrow way. Jesus is also our solid rock. To put faith in Jesus is to find the surest footing for today and for eternity. He is true wisdom and true obedience. Jesus' sermon ends with many being denied access to his presence on account of their works alone. And that's because it is only those who he truly knows who he welcomes in, which means that knowing Jesus is our firm foundation. So I pray that the Holy Spirit would open your eyes to see the God who is a perfect Father in heaven. And may you see Jesus as the one who fulfills the law and lets us build our lives on his obedience. Okay. So, again, I, just to save me from going through the entire Sermon on the Mount, three chapters, and, and read them, I'm assuming you've read them, uh, in the past, because they're pretty common, A and B. Um, these guys did a nice summary for 10 minutes. I, I, uh, uh, they, they summarize it way better than I could. So my goal uh, really is to um, help us to, to answer the call to live this out um, and, and make, this, make the Sermon on the Mount not just another message, but, uh, but to make it a lifestyle. Uh, it's the manifesto of the king. Manifesto means <clears throat> um, kind of like a constitution, kind of like when you have a when you uh, want to start a new country, you you write you know this is what our country is all about. These are our principles. This is what we're going to stand for. This is exactly what Jesus is doing, um, and it's a grid. Uh, imagine a, a pair of glasses where you're looking through, and it starts to color how you see things. And that's really important because near the end of the Sermon on the Mount, uh, in Matthew, uh, back in Matthew, um, Jesus, Jesus says, um, verse 15 of, of Matthew chapter 7, he says, watch out for false prophets. So this is in the middle of Jesus, I mean this is near the end of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. He says, watch out for false prophets. They will come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves, and by their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? No. Likewise, every good tree that bears good fruit, uh, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down, thrown in the fire. By their fruit you will recognize them. And, and so the Sermon on the Mount gives us a, uh, a very solid foundation in how to evaluate the false teaching that's going to inevitably come. We're watching it happen in our own day. I'm seeing it happen in our day, and what happens is 
you, they go back and they redefine words or they redefine scriptures and all of a sudden you've got a major emphasis on say for instance that God wants you to be monetarily prosperous he wants you to be rich God wants you to be rich just as an example we go to the we take that and we think well maybe he does want us to be rich we go to the Sermon on the Mount and we find out no God actually uh, is not really concerned about outward riches as he is about inward heart. He doesn't mind riches. People are, are love Jesus and are rich in the kingdom, but that is not the objective of the kingdom. It is a, it's a heart rendering. So um, I, what I want to do is kind of get a sense of us being on the mountain. Uh, so we're, we're there on the mountain with Jesus, and we look around, and who do we see among us? Uh, we get a sense for this in, in uh, Matthew chapter 4, right before Jesus talks. Um, and so, somebody besides Jordan, read, <laughs> read uh, Matthew 4, um, 4, let's say uh, 23, uh, 23 to the end. I can read it. Okay. News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, mm -hmm. Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. Right. So, verse five, uh, chapter 5, when Jesus saw those crowds, he went up on a mountain and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them, saying, and bam, there we are, right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. But before we get to the Sermon on the Mount, what kind of people is he talking to? What kind of people do you see there in, uh, in that section that Michaela just read? Sick people. Sick people. Am I right? Yeah. Is that? Uh-huh. Yeah, the ill. Yeah, those suffering various diseases. Weak people. Weak people, right. Like those that probably couldn't really give him much, you know. The paralyzed, yeah. The poor. Um, you see demon possessed there. Sinners. People, people who are demon possessed. What what you don't see, and 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 I, uh, again, he gave this message more than once. At this time, uh, he doesn't have a whole lot of rich people. Matthew is probably not among this particular crowd. Uh, he was probably sitting among other crowds, but at, he just, before the section that Michaela read, uh, we find out that they've only really uh, had fishermen following him at this point. Um, so in other words, they're not the esteemed. It's not the leadership. It's not the rich people. It's not the influencers. It's not the guy with a million YouTube followers. Um, these people are without honor. They're, they're not esteemed in the synagogues. They're not the one that you would call to stand up to read. They are, they are poor, desperate. Some of them are amputees. Some of them are women who have been divorced and left to fend for themselves with children and they're, and they're not making it. Some of them, some of them are the ones who uh, Jesus has proclaimed the good news. And some of them just got healed. Some, some of them still have leprosy. Others of them have been healed of their leprosy. And they're all there in this crowd. And that's who Jesus is, is talking about. And so we, we need to picture the fact that, you know, uh, it was the desperate. 
it was the people who had no other place to go, who had no influence. That particular phrase, no influence, is what really gets me. Um, and so, real quick, what does the structure of the book look like? Well, uh, Jesus talks about who the truly fortunate are, who the truly blessed are. Those are the Beatitudes. Those are, the, those are who the true disciples are, that they are salt and they are light. Um, then there's a uh, discussion about what perfect righteousness looks like, in particular regarding uh, murder and adultery and divorce, oaths, retribution, enemies, what good deeds look like, what prayer looks like, what prayer ought to look like, what fasting ought to look like, what saving uh, looks like, and, and where your treasure should be. Then it talks about the life of a follower, about worry and fear of an unknown future, and about judging, about asking, seeking, knocking, um, and, and Jesus' statement that this way of life it's going to feel narrow to you. It's going to feel constrained. It's going to feel um, not broad, uh, but it is, it's the way that leads to life. And then finally, he's going to talk about how do you tell false teaching and talking about the, uh, the way that you build. Um, it says some radical things. Uh, it, it says to, to love your enemies, um, to go the extra mile. And, and among this crowd may well have been some Roman soldiers. And when Jesus says, and all these, all, all of the, the uh, especially some of the zealots, are waiting for Jesus to lay out how he's going to kick the Romans off their back. How is he going to lead the rebellion against the Romans? Because we know it's coming. We know it's not going to be the fact that Jews are always going to be suppressed under the Roman overseers. How are we going to actually achieve this rebellion? And they're waiting. And one word from him, it's a powder cake, one word and they're ready to go. And Jesus uh, uh, instead says, um, love your enemies. And when they look up and they see the Romans, there is an example right there of their enemies. That's who he's talking about. And when he says, when somebody asks of you to go the extra mile, when somebody says that you carry something one mile, you were to go with them too. That was a real thing. A Roman, it was a, a Roman law where you could force any citizen to carry your burden, your backpack, etc., your weapons, one mile. No more than one mile. And Jesus says, when that Roman asks you to do that, you go too. You, you actually look him in the eye and you say, oh, I, I'd like to carry it another mile for you, sir. That, that's how radical it is for them to love their enemies, for them to carry this stuff on, on behalf of the Romans, for them to forgive when they when all they want to do is just lash out. Um, uh, the our, our uh, beanie cap buddy here on screen talked about um, saying that that adultery, that uh, that murder, that slander, for instance, using uh, insults or, or whatever on people, is like murder. Jesus says, no, it is the same as. Uh, our beanie cap buddy says lust for uh, uh, one for another, you know, in particular for women, is uh, like adultery. No, Jesus says it is the same as adultery. He, he ups the ante. You have heard it said uh, that, that, uh, that do not, uh, <laughs> I'm all in this thing, let me look it up. Um, you've, you've heard it said uh, in the past to people of old, um, Matthew, Matthew 27. 527? Yeah, he talks about adultery. Yeah, yeah, go ahead and read it out, McKinley. Okay. Unless it's about 31 or 
divorce, but it says, you have heard that it was said that you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better if you lose one part of your body than your whole body be thrown into hell. Continue reading. Mm-hmm. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go to hell. This freaked the, those listeners out, and it freaked, it continues to freak people out even to this day. It's like, are you kidding me? I, you know, how many people have heard their grandfather or their weird uncle say, once I stop looking, I'm going to be dead. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I've heard my weird uncle say that. So, yeah, this this kind of teaching is like, that's impossible. That can't happen. Jesus says that I am creating a new human. And this is the way life is going to look like. And that's not the hardest part. The hardest part is, is when you have an enemy and when you are right about, about a certain aspect, to forgive that enemy and to, and to speak blessing over them. Um, to go the extra mile. To say that slander is the same thing as murder. To say that slander... Jesus is not just being hyperbolic. He's not just saying something is, is you know, he's not exaggerating just for effect. He's saying that when you actually insult somebody, you basically are diminishing them to nothing. And you are, and you are basically saying that if I had the power, you're th- in parentheses, if only I had the power and the opportunity, and if no, and, and I could get away with it with no consequence, I would take that man's life. That, that's what he's saying when you're saying murder. He's saying the same thing about lust. He said, if only I had the power and nobody knew about it, I would, I would have sex with that girl right now, and, and if I could get away with it, I would do it. And he says, and you know that that's what's in your heart. What Jesus does is he's taking the whole, imagine an iceberg where some eight to nine parts are below water. What we see is a little piece that sticks up above water, the behavior. We see how people act. We see that piece. Jesus is looking at the whole pieces below the water, the heart actions. He's going after the heart that drives those behaviors that we see. And he says, I want your heart to be after me. That, that's what I'm going after. So that, that's the, the, um, what the radical, some of the radical things that the Sermon on the Mount says. There are a couple of radical things that the Sermon on the Mount does not say. You'll notice that there is no emphasis on Israeli nationalism. Um, and in fact, it's actually just the opposite, like I just explained. It's actually saying that I want you to, uh, to pray for your enemies and to forgive those who persecute you. And they were a persecuted people. And to go the extra mile. There's no, uh, and so there's no Jewish nationalism. nationalism and therefore, uh, with all due respect, we should be suspicious of Christian nationalism. Meaning, thinking that the sermon that that what Jesus did was to come into our lives to make us a great nation, you know, be, uh, because that's not the nation that He's building up. He's, he didn't do so in in Israel's time. He's not doing it in our country either. There's no Jewish only racism. In other words, He's not saying, and you Jews are going to be uh, uh, blessed only only you. And in fact, what happens is that Jesus is standing on, on prophecies that have been made up till then, Isaiah, Isaiah 42, for instance, that says that it's not only to you, Jews, that I have given this light, but you will also be a light to the Gentiles. They are going to be swept into this. 
And so Jesus doesn't say it's us only and to emphasize those boundaries. He, you don't hear any of that in the Sermon on the Mount. There's no advice about how to be healthy. There's no advice about how to be wealthy. There's no advice about how to be wise. There's no advice about uh, how to have more influence among people, etc. None of the things that we esteem today, if you were to listen to the media or go to the books or whatever, none of those things are found in the Sermon on the Mount. Instead, it is going low. It is being humble. It's emphasizing the meek. It is saying, watch out for those poor. When you're oppressing the poor, when you have means and you're oppressing the poor, watch out for them because I've got my eye on them. And you better be careful about that. They're strong, and there's strong warnings about what false prophets look like. So um, what I want to do is, what I tried to do uh, is look uh, hard. I looked pretty hard to find examples of people who actually live a Sermon on the Mount lifestyle. I mean like completely, like where you look at them and you think, who lives a Sermon on the Mount lifestyle? And it is not easy, and I can't think of a one in modern times uh, I, that lives. Uh, the closest I could come to was Martin Luther King. Um, and so what I want to do is t- spend a few minutes, and I was going to do this in groups, but I think I'm just going to do it. Did Jordan pick up? Okay. So for the, maybe the Forbes, including you, hon, you get, you get to read yours, um, St. Francis. Um, what I want to do is, let me see here, I will give you, um, I'm going to give this to Michaela. Um, I'm going to give Cheryl Martin Luther King. I am going to give you, Mother Teresa, Olivia. Um, what I want to do is, is uh, I'm going to ask you to take about s- five to seven minutes, read through that, and answer two questions for me. Where do you see the Sermon on the Mount? teaching in this person, um, and, and what else impressed you? What, what, what kind of hit you? So what hit you? Where do you see someone on the mountain? You got five or six minutes.
another about uh, 30 seconds. It's okay if you've got just a kind of a rough outline. It's, we're we're all friends here. We're just going to try and capture what we can. But uh, <clears throat> let me ask Aim first of all to to do yours. Where she she's got a story that I don't think any of you have ever heard about from Saint Francis, who lived when. St. Francis converted certain robbers and assassins who became monks and of the wonderful vision which appeared to one of them. So it's the, the part about the vision is the part I didn't make a copy of. But um, So yeah, I'm just going to read you the first couple pages and you'll get the Sermon on the Mount out of this. I love St. Francis. <laughs> Literally, this, this is one of my favorite books of all time. St. Francis went one day down the desert of Borgo to San Sepulcro, whatever, and passing by a castle called Monte Casal, he saw a young man of noble mien, but slender and delicate in appearance, coming towards him, who thus addressed him, Father, I would willingly become one of thy monks. St. Francis answered, My son, thou art young and noble and delicate, perhaps thou wouldst not be able to endure the poverty and the hardships. The young man said, Father, are you not men like me? If you then can support these things through the grace of God, I shall be able to do likewise. This answer greatly pleased St. Francis, and giving the young man his blessing, he received him immediately into the order and gave him the name Brother Angel. Now, And this young man was so remarkable and so distinguished that he was shortly named guardian of the convent of Monte Cassel. And at that time, there were three famous robbers in that part of the country who did much evil in all the neighborhood. They came one day to the said convent and asked Brother Angel, the guardian, to give them something to eat. The guardian, reproving them harshly, answered them thus, Cruel robbers and murderers, you are not ashamed to deprive others of the fruits of their labors, and you have the courage to come here to devour that which is given in charity to the servants of God, you who are not worthy of the earth which bears you, for you neither respect man nor the Lord who made you. Go away about your business and do not appear here again. And much troubled by these words, the robbers went away in anger. Shortly after, St. Francis arrived at the convent with a sack of bread and a little vessel of wine, which he and his companions had begged, and the guardian related to him how he had sent away the robbers. St. Francis reproved him sharply, saying that he had behaved most cruelly, 
for sinners are brought back to God more easily by kindness than by harsh words. Wherefore, he said, our master Jesus Christ, whose word we have promised to observe, says that the whole, that the whole need not a physician, but the sick, and that he came not to call the just, but the sinners to repentance. And for this reason, he often sat down to meet with them. As then thou hast acted against charity and against the gospel of Christ, I command thee in the name of holy obedience to take with thee this sack of bread, which I have begged, 